0: Frank Allen, in his work on the Book of Acts, sometime back, early 20th century, he told a rather remarkable story of two English lords that had entered the parliament in 1749. One was named or identified as Lord Littleton, and the other one was Sir Gilbert West. They entered the parliament as skeptics, and they ridiculed the idea that Christianity was superior to other belief systems like Confucianism and Buddhism. According to Allen, they often met and congratulated themselves on their freedom of thought. Well, one day, Gilbert said to Littleton that there's two things. There are two things that we must do to make sure that our position is entirely secure. First, we must disprove the resurrection of Jesus Christ and show that it was a myth. And secondly, we must show that the alleged conversion of the Apostle Paul to Christianity is not true. So they each took one of those assignments and they agreed that at an appointed time, after studying the matter, after writing about it, they would reconvene and they would share their findings with one another. And as Alan notes, each man set himself to uh, diligently undertake that task. Well, West gathered all of the evidence that he could concerning the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. But taking into account all of the facts that he found, he came to believe that Jesus Christ had actually rose from the dead and he came to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, in like manner, Littleton, he started studying and reading the accounts of Paul's conversion. As Paul retold his testimony in the book of Acts, he read about that. He read about Paul's trials, about Paul's imprisonment. He read Paul's epistles and so on. And he came to see, he came to believe that the Christian belief that the Apostle Paul was truly converted was indeed true. So they both came to these convictions And I like how Alan put it. Alan had said that one of them had said, as did the other, I laid all of my good deeds in one heap, and I laid all of my bad deeds in another heap, and I fled from them both to Christ and found in Him sweet peace. So they came together, they came together and they met as they planned to, and um, as Alan noted, each made a frank confession to the other. And they rejoiced in having found Jesus as Lord and Savior. In fact... They agreed to publish their findings in a book together. Now, after recalling that account, Frank Allen, he went on to note, "...it is far better to be an honest inquirer, but God in his mercy opens the heart of many a critical inquirer so that he sees and believes." And gathered there on the day of Pentecost, as we have seen early on in Acts chapter 2, there were both honest inquirers who were wondering what is going on, and there were also critical inquirers who said these people are drunk, they're under the influence of sweet wine. And both the honest inquirers and the critical inquirers had Peter, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, set before them a gracious onslaught of evidence showing that Jesus was indeed the promised Messiah while at the same time showing them their culpability. So remember, just by way of review, as we make our way into the text, remember, Peter has shown them multiple lines of evidence. Acts 2, verse 22. He showed them and reminded them that Jesus was a man attested by God to them by miracles, wonders, and signs, which he did and God did through him in their midst as they themselves knew. So evidence one, line one, you all know the miracles that Jesus did. You know that he fed the 5,000 plus. You know that he healed the sick and he raised the dead and so on. And then he went on, verse 23, to say that Jesus' death was according to the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. Verse 24, he spoke of Jesus being resurrected from the dead. And then in verses 25 through 31, he showed how this was beautifully tied to the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. And if that evidence wasn't enough, in verse 32, Peter goes on to say, And we are witnesses of his resurrection. Peter, the twelve, doubtless many among the hundred and twenty, maybe even all the hundred and twenty, were among the witnesses that saw Jesus rise from the dead. Saw the risen Christ after he had risen from the dead. Evidence after evidence. Peter went on to Tell them as well that Jesus' ascension to the right hand of the Father was also prophesied in the Old Testament, verses 33 through 35. So Peter preached to honest and critical inquirers alike, and he showed them an onslaught of evidence that Jesus was indeed the promised Messiah. But he also didn't hold back, he showed them their culpability. We see twice in this abbreviated, succinct version of Peter's sermon that he told the people that it was they with lawless hands who had Jesus crucified. He told them in verse 36, "...let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ." So he set before them the truth of Christ's identity. He set before them the truth of their culpability. And those two ingredients mixed together, if you will, with the activating agent of the person of the Holy Spirit brought about a question among many. Namely, what shall we do? We've heard the message. We get it. What shall we do? We'll see that as we make our way into the text. We begin... In Acts chapter 2, verse 37, where we read, Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Men and brethren, what shall we do? So you notice that the message of Peter provoked both conviction and inquiry. Now by God's grace, I want you to notice what's happening here. The people that are here, at least 3,000 of them or so, we find out in verse 41, they didn't shrug off what Peter was saying. They weren't like those who, to whom Paul spoke in Athens, that when they heard Paul preached, they mocked and they said, we will hear you again on this matter. Acts 17.32 Those who responded to Peter were not like Felix, who although he was afraid, remember when Paul was speaking to him, he had this sense of fear. And although he was afraid, he responded to Paul's witness by saying, go away for now. When I have a convenient time, I will call for you. Acts twenty-four verse twenty-five. These people, at least about 3,000 or so, are not like that. When they heard this, they were cut to the heart. So let's just work through the language a little bit. For starters, we're told when they heard this. I've already told you, but I'll say it again they were not everybody. They were the 3,000 or so who really heard this. You find that out again in Acts chapter 2, verse 41. And I want to remind you, I think this is very important. Notice, they heard. Peter had called them to attention, right? Verse 22, men of Israel, hear these words. And now you get to the end here, and we find out that they actually heard. They were actually listening. And I think this is so important. A little bit of pastoral counsel here once again. I did this a few weeks ago. I'll do it again. They weren't daydreaming. They were listening. They weren't on their iota phones. Iota is basically the... Um, Greek version of the letter I. So they weren't on their equivalent of the iPhone or whatever. You didn't have Simeon in Jerusalem reaching out to Benjamin down in Bethlehem during Peter's preaching to see if they were still on for lunch later on in the day. You didn't have somebody reading Genesis 1 while Peter was preaching Acts chapter 2. You didn't have the people there hearing Peter say the word kurios, and then somebody breaks out a concordance to find out every time the word kurios is used in the Septuagint. They were listening. They were paying attention. And so much learning begins when somebody actually just says, I'm going to engage. I'm here. I'm listening. Lord, speak to me through your word. I want to understand it. I want my mind to be renewed. I want my heart to be inflamed. I am engaged. To use words Words that Jesus used in Luke's gospel, I encourage you, watch how you listen. Watch how you listen. So they listened, and they were hearing, and what they heard provoked conviction. Look at this language here. They were cut to the heart. That word for cut is an inflected form of the Greek word "katanuso." It means to be pierced down. It's like their hearts were thrust through with a spear. They were thrust through with conviction. This was a good remorse. This was true contr- contrition. As I was thinking about this, I imagined them being like a group of Davids. Like, remember when Nathan came to David and he told him the parable of the ewe lamb, which was meant to expose David's guilt? And when Nathan said to him, you are the man, then all of a sudden David's heart, you might say, was pierced and he said i have sinned they were like a group of davids if you will in that moment their hearts were pierced i think you have here a kind of foretaste of zechariah chapter 12 verse 10 when they with eyes of faith were looking upon through the lens of faith the one that they had pierced it's as though a state of mourning then ensued they knew they sinned against light they sinned against prophecy they sinned against god They saw what they did. They saw that it couldn't be undone. What can we do? We were complicit in this. Maybe there were even people there who were there during the Passover who were among the crowd who shouted, crucify him. And they knew that to some degree or another, they were complicit. They knew they had done wrong. They knew it couldn't be undone. And they were pierced through the heart. And they're hoping probably that there's some means of escape. We've heard the message. We get that he's the Christ. We get that we're guilty. What shall we do? That is their response. As a result of the word of God being preached, as a result of the Spirit's ministry, already there's been a change of disposition. Whatever their disposition was before, whether it was curious or callous, all of a sudden here, they're now informed and they're convicted and they say to Peter and the rest of the apostles, men and brethren, what shall we do? Now note, as a quick aside, Peter may be the spokesman, as he often is for the apostles, but they recognized not only Peter, they recognized the apostles. They said to Peter, end the apostles of the Lamb. What shall we do? They didn't know the way. They didn't know what to do at that moment. They remind me of Saul of Tarsus when he met the risen Christ on the road to Damascus and he said to Jesus, Lord, what do you want me to do? Acts chapter 9, verse 6. They remind me of the Philippian jailer. You asked Paul and Silas, what must I do to be saved? These are right questions. As one commentator suggested, the beginning of true conversion is made when men have come to ask this question. Joined to this question are other ones. Is there hope? Can we be forgiven? What shall we do? Now a quick aside, for anyone who is called to preach and teach God's word, I just want to remind you that when Jesus preached at his hometown of Nazareth, you can see this in Luke chapter 4, the people there were filled with wrath and they wanted to kill him. When Stephen bore witness of Israel's history, the guilt of the present generation to whom he was speaking, and of the just one, the Lord Jesus Christ, he got stoned, So don't be surprised or overly disappointed if your preaching or your evangelism doesn't yield these kind of results. Just by way of reminder, to use language from Acts chapter 13, verse 48, those who were appointed to eternal life believed. This was the appointed time for these conversions that are forthcoming in our text. So they asked Peter, what shall we do? And Peter went on to provide them with answers. Verse 38, Then Peter said to them, repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. And you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So first Peter, as a representative of the apostles, because remember the question was posed not only to Peter, but to the apostles. He said to them, repent, repent. The Greek verb here for repent is a combination of two words which speak to a change of thinking. Meta, noeo, change of thinking. But we could say more about that. Repentance, when you look through the scriptures, you look at the way this word is used, it doesn't just simply mean a change of thinking. It's a change of thinking that usually emerges from, stem, extends from, and stems from godly sorrow. 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 10. It's godly sorrow that produces Repentance. And it leads to a change of behavior. Now when repentance first happens, the first moment a person repents and they have a change of thinking, they get it that their good works are not going to save them. They get it that Jesus actually is the Lord and Messiah and they want to turn from their sin and they want to give their lives to the Lord Jesus Christ. The first moment that happens, according to the scriptures, that is repentance unto life. Acts chapter 11, verse 18. That is the moment where a person Goes from death to life, where they experience, to use language from 2 Corinthians 7:10, salvation. It is the opposite of perishing, 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9. But I also want to remind you: even when a person has professed faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, when sin is practiced, By individuals or by churches, in the scriptures, we see those who are among local churches and local churches themselves called to repent. More about that in a moment. If you go through the scriptures, go through the New Testament, you'll see that people are called to repent. Essentially to turn away from, have godly sorrow with regards to, have a change of thinking with regards to certain sins and turn away from them. Some of the sins that are listed in the New Testament include the following. People being called to repent of their wickedness. Acts chapter 8 verse 22. People being called to repent of their uncleanness, fornication, and lewdness. Words associated with immorality that they have practiced. You see that in 2 Corinthians chapter 12 verse 21. They are called to repent from dead works. Hebrews chapter 6 verse 1. People ought to repent from their idolatry, murders, sorceries, sexual immoralities, and from thefts. Revelation chapter 9, verses 20 and 21. People are called to repent and give glory to God. Revelation 16, 9. And to turn away from their evil deeds. So any kind of sin that's being practiced, people are called to turn away from them, repent, have a change of thinking with regards to, but may that change of thinking lead to a change of behavior, turn away from such things. Now again, this language predominantly is used with people coming to salvation. Having that initial repentance. A change of thinking with regards to Christ. Turning from sin and embracing the lordship of Jesus. But it's also used with respect to churches. Jesus used this word quite a bit in the book of Revelation. Revelation chapter 2 and 3 when speaking the churches. Five out of seven churches in the book of Revelation, Revelation 2 and 3, have messages and calls to repent from the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus called the church of Ephesus to repent. Revelation 2.5 He told the church of Pergamos to repent. Revelation 2.16 He called that woman Jezebel who called herself a prophetess and those who committed adultery with her to repent. In Thyatira... Revelation chapter 2, verses 21 and 22. He called Sardis, that church that had a name of being alive, a reputation of being alive, alive, although it was dead, and many had soiled their garments in Sardis, he called them to repent. He called lukewarm Laodicea to leave their lukewarmness and to repent. Revelation 3.19. So let me just provide a little bit of pastoral application in this moment. Our aim as a local church together as a body of believers, ought to be like, ought to be to be like the Church of Smyrna and the Church of Philadelphia in the sense that, at least per this current consideration, that we would be those kind of churches that Jesus could look at and not explicitly say, you got this going on and you need to stop that. You need to repent. That there's some kind of sin that is being practiced, unrepentance is being shown, and you need to stop. We would do well to imagine that if a letter was sent to the messenger of the Church of Tottenville, that by God's grace it wouldn't include things like this. You have those among your assembly who are quietly, in an ongoing way, unrepentingly practicing sexual immorality. You have those who are watching pornography. You have those who are nursing bitterness and unforgiveness and their hearts are becoming callous and cold. You have those who are given to worldliness, who could put on a face on a Sunday but then can be a different person during the week. You have there those wives that are not submitting to the leadership of their husbands. You have those husbands that are not loving and serving their wives as they ought to be. You have these things going there. Going on there and there needs to be repentance. I just want to encourage you, whatever it might be, may each of us do our parts to be proactively pursuing a holy life. Walking in purity, walking in unity, walking in love, walking in consistency, walking in faithfulness. So that those things could not be said of us. That doesn't mean that we're going to be perfect and sinless. I know that. But again, when Jesus looked at the church of Smyrna, when he looked at the church of Philadelphia, churches that, by the way, were suffering hard times, that were suffering affliction to one degree or another, there was no call to repent. And I just want to encourage you, do your part, as it were, to be actively pursuing repentance and walking in fidelity with Jesus. Not because you're trying to earn salvation, but because Jesus has secured salvation for you and you are his. You belong to him. You're not your own. You have been bought. The totality of who you are, from your head to your feet, belong to the Lord Jesus Christ. You belong to him. Now, a bit more about repentance. I want to park here for a minute because I think this is very important. I think remembering the biblical roots associated with the call of repentance helps protect us from seeing the word repentance as kind of a word that's associated with a bygone error. You know, as a kind of word that's associated with like caricatures of, you know, callous and cold, condescending Turner street preachers. We've grown beyond using the word repentance. We share the gospel and we don't need to say the word repentance. We are beyond that as 2023 evangelical Christians. Well, I just want to remind you John the Baptist came preaching and he came preaching a message repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Matthew chapter 3, verse 2. In the very next chapter, Jesus, we're told, began to preach, and He began to say, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Jesus, in Luke chapter 5, verse 32, said, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to what? To repentance. Jesus says that all of heaven rejoices, that the angels in heaven rejoice over one sinner that does what? Repent. Here Peter is on the day of Pentecost, the first sermon, if you will, of the New Testament church error. And he is preaching a message that includes the response for people, repent. In the very next chapter, in Acts chapter 3, Peter is going to call those to whom he's speaking to repent, therefore, and be converted that your sins may be blotted out. Paul told the Ephesian elders before he left them. He told them that he testified to both Jews and Greeks concerning repentance towards God and faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ. I just want to remind you that clearly repentance was a part of the gospel call. Think about it. According to Acts chapter 17 verse 30, God is calling all men everywhere to repent. And how is he doing that? Through his people. How shall they hear without a preacher? How shall they preach unless they are sent? He's doing it through his people. So if God is calling all people everywhere to repent, then preachers, missionaries, and all of God's people have the responsibility to vocalize that. Don't leave it out of your vocabulary. It's a biblical word. Again, to define it, or to attempt at defining it, repentance is a change of thinking, oftentimes connected with a sorrow over sin and results in a change of behavior. A little bit more about that, the change of behavior. Remember John the Baptist told his hearers to bear fruits worthy of repentance. The idea was that repentance would actually have some verifiable evidence that it actually occurred. It wasn't just a change of thinking that was up here. It was a change of thinking that showed itself with fruits, verifiable evidences. Remember when John was speaking to his hearers, and the people wanted some specifics, and they asked that question, What shall we do then? They knew they had to be baptized with John's baptism, but nonetheless, they wanted to know what they needed to do. And John said to them, He who has two tunics, let him give to him who has none, and he who has food, let him do likewise. Well, the tax collectors had the same question. What do we do? Essentially, what is repentance going to look like for us? And John told them, Collect no more than what is appointed for you. And the soldiers followed suit. They wanted to know, what should we do? And then John told them, do not intimidate anyone or accuse falsely and be content with your wages. So that's one of the many reasons why we would say repentance shows itself with a change of behavior. And I want to remind you of the origin of repentance. When you actually do display repentance... When you have a change of thinking, when you first came to the Lord Jesus Christ, and you repented unto life, and your sins were blotted out, I want to remind you of the origin of repentance. It didn't emerge from the fallen hearts of men and women. It was a gracious gift granted by God. In 2 Timothy chapter two, verses 24 and 25, 25 and 26, in that context there, uh, Paul told Timothy, a servant of the Lord. Uh, this is verse 24. A servant of the Lord must not quarrel, but be gentle to all, able to teach, patient in humility, correcting those who are in opposition, if God perhaps will grant them repentance so that they may know the truth. 2 Timothy two twenty-four and 25. Remember when Peter, you're going to see this later on in the book of Acts, when he goes back to Jerusalem and he talks about how Cornelius and other Gentiles believed the gospel and received the Holy Spirit, the church responded in Acts chapter 11, verse 18 by saying, then God has also granted, emphasis on the word granted, to the Gentiles repentance to life. So hopefully you have a better understanding of repentance it involves a change of thinking, a turning away from sin, often stemming from godly sorrow, and it results in a change of behavior. Don't leave it out of your gospel proclamation. Have it in there. It's a biblical word. It's a biblical word. Now back to the text. Peter's hearers, they were cut to the heart. They wanted to know what to do, and Peter told them, repent. Repent. And then he provided them with the first step they could take to demonstrate their repentance. What would repentance immediately look like for them? It would look like going public with their faith. It would look like being baptized. There's a few things I want to say about this. Peter said, let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. So the first thing I want you to note is that baptism demonstrated repentance. It was a kind of immediate proof of repentance. And it was also a public demonstration of faith in the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. I want you to know that when you look at how uh, baptism is used, whether it's in 1 Peter 3 or whether it's in Paul recounting his testimony in Acts 22, you could see that it was connected with calling upon the Lord. Looking to him for a clean conscience and forgiveness of sins. That you went public with your faith, and baptism symbolized what you believe happened to you and what you were looking for from Christ in the forgiveness of sins. But it demonstrated repentance. Now, second, I want to remind you of this. Here we are reminded again of something I've told you many times, and I will continue to tell you that baptism is that foundational act of Christian obedience. It is not Christianity 201. It's not Christianity 301. As a matter of fact, when you walk through the door of faith, as it were, as you walk through the door of faith and you believe the gospel, it's as though on the other side of that door, there is a pool of water. You don't have to cram for it like it's a test and say, I got to cram, I got to study real hard, so I'm ready to be baptized. You don't have to be like a triathlete preparing for a triathlon and say, I'm going to take six months to get ready for my baptism. You don't do that. You believe, you come through the door of faith, and it's as though on the other side of the door you get baptized. You don't have altar calls in the scriptures, right? You don't have people doing the thing where, you know, with every eye bow, every eye closed and every head bowed. Raise your hand if you believe that Jesus is Savior. You don't have that. You know what you have? Come forward. Do you believe? Repent and be baptized. Go public. Let the faith that you have in your heart, let it come out and let it be seen by people as you are baptized. And so please, I plead with you, if you have not been baptized, if you believe in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and that he is the way, the truth, and the life and that he is your Savior, I encourage you to come and be baptized and to go public with your faith. You simply do it. You don't have to get ready for it. I'm not sure if I'm ready yet. You're ready. If you, do you believe the gospel? You are qualified. If you are qualified to do it, you need to do it. How do I know if I'm qualified? Do you believe that Jesus is your Lord and Savior? I do. Do you believe there's any other way to, to heaven, any other way that anyone can get to heaven? No, I believe he's the only way. You believe he rose from the grave? Yeah, I believe he rose from the grave. So he's your Lord and Savior? Yes. You don't believe there's any other way? No, I don't. You're qualified. You need to be baptized if you haven't been. You'll see it in the book of Acts. So we'll see this over and over again in the book of Acts. So important. Uh, Third, I want you to notice here, um, Peter, when he said to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ, he wasn't giving a um, kind of updated formula of the prescription for baptism that Jesus gave in Matthew 28:19. Remember, Jesus said um, to be baptized in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. The idea was right here, these people had rejected Jesus, these Jewish people, but now in baptism, they were to identify with Jesus. They were to have their faith be public, and they were to publicly identify with the one that they had previously rejected and spurned. They were to submit to his ordinance. They were to submit to his lordship. And in calling on his name, they would receive the remission of sins. Just as a note there, that language, remission of sins, that's amazing. Not one sin, but all sins through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And I want to note here, because the language here could could be confusing, To somebody. When they look at the language here that that Peter had said to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, some people could mistakenly come to the conclusion that Peter is saying the means through which you get forgiveness is baptism. Baptism is the vehicle that brings to you the forgiveness of sins. I want to assuredly say to you, if we went nowhere else, and I will show you this in a moment. If we stood in Acts chapter 2, verse 38, which is where I will be in a moment, you need not go anywhere else. I can show you very clearly that's not what he's talking about here. But just to make this case so cumulative and so clear, let me just briefly show you how I would think through this very clearly. When you go through the book of Acts, you see very clearly that Peter does not believe that the remission of sins comes through the vehicle of baptism. I say that because in Acts chapter 3, he calls people to repent so that their sins might be blotted away and he doesn't speak of baptism. I say that because when you look at Acts chapter 10, verse 43, when he is proclaiming Christ to Cornelius and to his household, Peter said to him, speaking of Jesus, all the prophets, prophets witness that through his name, whoever believes in him will receive the remission of sins. That's Peter A little bit later on, at the Jerusalem Council, in Acts chapter 15, we see Peter speak to the reality that God was saving and giving the Holy Spirit to Gentiles, and he saved them, and he gave them the Holy Spirit without them being baptized prior to baptism. Just to give you some of the language that Peter used, so you can see what Peter's conviction was right there in the book of Acts, Acts chapter 15, verse 7, And when there had been much dispute, this is at the Jerusalem Council, Peter rose up and said to them, Men and brethren, you know that a good while ago God chose among us that by my mouth the Gentiles should what? Hear the word of the gospel and believe. So first point right there. They should hear and believe. Peter goes on. So God, who knows the heart, he knew that there was true spirit-wrought faith. They weren't making believe or fooling Peter or others. God acknowledged them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. So they believed the gospel and they got the Holy Spirit without water baptism. And then he goes on in verse 9, Peter does, in Acts 15, and he says that God made no distinction between us and them, purifying their hearts by faith, not by water. As a matter of fact, Peter will make that clear in 1 Peter 3 that somebody is not saved with the washing away of the filth of the flesh in physical baptism. But it's actually the appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. So whether it's in Acts or whether it's in Peter's epistle, we see that Peter believed that you are justified by grace alone through faith alone. I can labor this point even more. You go through the book of Acts. The same Luke who's writing um, Acts chapter 2, he writes the rest of the book of Acts. He's the same one that records, for instance, Paul. When the Philippian jailer said, what must I I do to be saved? He records Paul saying, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. He records Paul preaching in Antioch in Pisidia. And how he ended his sermon saying, therefore let it be known to you, brethren, that through this man is preached to you the forgiveness of sins. And by him everyone who believes is justified from all things from which you cannot be justified by the law of Moses. So Peter's conviction, as seen in Acts, and seen in his epistle, the overall tenor of the book of Acts is that justification is by grace alone through faith alone. Now I could read to you about 50 more verses from the New Testament to show you that justification is by grace alone through faith alone. You know the verses. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, Romans 5, 1, John chapter 1, verse 12. I'm not going to recite 50 verses. Like, is he really going to do this? I'm not doing it. I'm just telling you, there are a lot. Romans chapter 10, verses 9 and 10, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 21, and so on. So, with that being said, having that context of Peter's conviction, of the book of Acts, of the New Testament very clearly, yet alone the Old Testament, we come back to Acts 2:38. So, what is being said right there in Acts 2.38? I want you to see that the preposition ace is being used. You won't see that in your text, but it's an important Greek preposition, and I'll show you why it's important, because we can see very clearly what's happening here. Ace is the Greek preposition that often is translated as into or unto, and I think the idea of what's going on here is that it connotes identification with, to be baptized, so as to connote identification with the forgiveness of sins. Let me make this case very briefly to you by giving you a few examples briefly. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 2, Paul spoke of Israel passing through the Red Sea, and he said they were all baptized into, there's that preposition that's used in Acts 2.38, into, ace, into Moses. What did that mean? They were all associated with, identified with Moses, who was their old covenant mediator. So what did it mean in 1 Corinthians 10.2, being baptized into Moses? It meant Being identified with Moses. In Matthew chapter 3, verse 11, John the Baptist said, I baptize you with water unto repentance. Now, now if he was going to use the same translation that we see here in Acts 2.38, he could have said, for repentance. It's the same Greek word. It's the same preposition, ace, into. And when John said, I baptize you with repentance, or with water unto repentance, the idea is clear. The water baptism was identifying people with repentance. The water baptism didn't make the people repentant. It wasn't a means to the end of repent- to the end that was repentance. It wasn't that. It simply identified the people with repentance. It showed what had already taken place. And you have that same language used right here in Acts 2.38. Just like Ace Metanoion into or unto repentance, connoted in an association with repentance, right here in Acts 2.38, you have ace, aphesen, into, unto, forgiveness. So it's not that the baptism brings about the forgiveness, it's that the baptism connotes an association with, identifies the people with forgiveness, demonstrating a reality that already took place, just like what we saw in Matthew 3.11, just like in 1 Corinthians ten. So while baptism is very important, don't miss me on that. Baptism is very important. It's it's as though the New Testament does not know a Christian that's not baptized. Because people who are baptized in the New Testament, uh, people who are Christian in the New Testament, they are baptized. I know, thief on the cross, that's different. It's a different little situation there. And so you don't need it to get into heaven. But it is a part of the Christian life. It's a strange thing to imagine a Christian who says, I am a Christian, but doesn't get baptized. It's as though such a thing, except in very exceptional circumstances, um, is not even recognized in the New Testament. So please, if you haven't been baptized, out of obedience to the Lord, be baptized. That brings us to verse 39, where we will conclude today. Peter says, For the promise is to you and to your children and to all who are afar off, as many as the Lord our God will call. This is amazingly gracious. The promise that's spoken of here most immediately appears to be the Holy Spirit. Jeremiah 31, 34, Jesus spoke of the Spirit of God being the promise of the Father. And His presence is, of course, connected with the forgiveness of sins. So the promise, Jesus is saying, to that group. To what group? Those group? That group of Jewish people that were cut to the heart. He tells them, this promise is to you. So most immediately, it was a promise that was extended, as it were, to the Jewish people, particularly to those who were cut to the heart. But then it gets even more gracious, if you will. He says this promise extends beyond them to your children, he told them. Think of how amazingly gracious this is in light of words that were spoken not too long before when Jesus was crucified. Remember when Pilate had said, after he had taken water... Remember, he washed his hands and he spoke to the multitude and he said, I am innocent of the blood of this just person you see to it. You remember that the people responded by saying, His blood be on us and on our children. Matthew twenty seven twenty five. And yet, despite the curse that they uttered upon themselves, here Peter is, the Holy Spirit has been given on Pentecost, and he says, this promise, the promise of the Holy Spirit and the forgiveness of sins, it's extended to you and to your children. There's a promise of blessing that's even greater than the curse that some of you, perhaps in that very crowd, had uttered upon themselves. But it's not just to the Jewish people in that moment. It's not just to their children. It is to all who are far off. That's a reference to Gentiles, to non-Jews, this promise of the Holy Spirit, all who are far off. That's Ephesians 2.13, Ephesians 2.17 language to speak of the Gentiles. But then watch what Peter does. He qualifies what he said. There's this promise for you, for your children, for all who are far off, and then he qualifies it with these words. As many as our Lord God will call. As some translations render it, as many as our Lord God will call to himself. So who is the promise for? Whoever calls upon the name of the Lord. And who are those who will call upon the name of the Lord? Those by whom the grace of God have been reached. And they are the ones that God has called unto himself in the mystery of God's sovereignty. So it's for the Jewish people. It's for their children. It's for all Gentiles. Here is the promise. Call upon the name of the Lord and you will be saved. You will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, the same Holy Spirit who opened your eyes. You'll be indwelt by him. He will stay inside of you. He is the guarantee of the redemption that you have in Christ Jesus. And if you've called on the Lord, it's because he called you. If you love him, to use language from John, it's because he first loved you, if you found him, to use imagery from Luke 15, it's because he first sought you. You call on the name of the Lord because he called your name. Side note: Remember earlier on uh, when Peter is quoting at, uh, Joel chapter two, verse thirty-two. Even there, whoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Even there, there's the same nuance when you get to the end of the verse. There we're told that it's among the remnant whom the Lord God calls. So this nuance that Peter has here is a nuance that was found in the scripture that he was quoting earlier. Amazing. So let me conclude by making some concluding applications. If there'd be anybody in this place or anybody hearing my voice who has not come to the Lord Jesus Christ, to use language that Peter has used, let your lawless hands be washed by the blood of the Lamb. Turn from sin... I exhort you, repent and leave it behind like the disciples left their fishing nets behind. Start your new life in Christ. Go public with your faith. As I told you before and I tell you again, there is no altar call in the Bible. And you didn't need an altar, by the way, because the cross was sufficient. There was no raise your hands while every head is bowed and every eye is closed moment. There is baptism. So if you see Jesus Christ as the promised Messiah who died for you, go public with your faith. If you believe the gospel, you are qualified to be baptized. You are responsible to be baptized. I'd say repent, be baptized, and spend the rest of your Christian life walking in the Spirit who opened your eyes to the glory of Christ, the sufficiency of the cross, and the assurance of forgiveness. Christian, For those in this place who do know the Lord Jesus Christ, I want to remind you, let your evangelism be fine-tuned by God's Spirit and by Christ's Apostle. If you want to be reminded of how important this is, you turn to Luke 24, verses 46 and 47, and you see that the necessary message that was to be preached was the message of repentance unto the remission of sins. Include that in your message when you're talking to people. God is calling all men everywhere to repent. He's calling them to leave behind their idolatries. He is calling people to turn from their sin, to have a godly sorrow over sin, to look to Him alone for the forgiveness of sins. And if God is calling all men everywhere to repent, you and I must as well. Peter did it. Paul did it. Jesus did it. And you and I must do it. But let me remind you, we must not only preach it, we must live it. Repentance unto life, note this, repentance unto life is a one-time event. That moment where a person repents unto life, that's a one-time event. When they have a change of thinking, they believe the gospel, and so on, that's a one-time event. And that is overwhelmingly how that word is used in the New Testament. But where there is sin in our lives, where there's perhaps a growing pattern of bad behavior... And you know, sometimes it's like a bad habit that all of a sudden you're like, oh, I'm letting my tongue be a little bit too loose. I'm letting my thoughts get away from me. Whatever it is, whatever that is, you are called to repent. Turn away from that. Turn away from it. If Job needed to repent, if David needed to repent, please expect that you and I will need to as well. Don't make the mistake that the northern kingdom of Israel did. Hosea chapter 11, verse 5, they refused to repent. Don't do that. May this church be described, at least in the eyes of our Savior, as a group of individuals who are quick to repent, who have a short leash on their flesh, as it were. Like, oh, my thoughts go in there. Oh, I, I, I let my words slip. Oh, I shouldn't be doing this. And there's a short leash to say, no, Lord, I'm sorry. I love you. I'm turning away from that. I love you. You are my God. May the eyes of the Lord Jesus, as he sees the individuals in this place, Because he knows, right, the evaluation that he gave of Ephesus, of Smyrna, of Thyatira, of Pergamos, of Sardis, of Laodicea, of Philadelphia, shows he knows exactly what's going on. And I am telling you, he is watching us, he knows, and if you are in Christ, please know, he loves you more than you could imagine. If you are outside of Christ, I plead with you to see him so that all of your sins could be forgiven in a moment, the moment you come to faith in Christ. But for those who are in Christ, please know, he sees And may we be marked as a people who have contrite hearts, who are not like those in the northern kingdom who refuse to repent, but those who are quick to repent with sensitive hearts to the Lord, not making the same mistake that the northern kingdom that was taken captive by Assyria made. The gospel is too great and God's grace is too beautiful for us to be that way. Amen? Let's go to our Lord in prayer. Father, Father, Thank You for Your life-giving, mind-renewing Word, Lord. Thank You for the soul-cleansing Gospel. Thank You, Heavenly Father, for the forgiveness of sins and the washing away of our sins. Thank You that You've not placed upon us a yoke that we cannot bear that would crush us. But in the Gospel, we are called by Your Son to take His yoke upon us, which is easy and His burden is light. I thank you that you change our hearts, you change our affections, you renew our minds, and then we desire to walk in the path of your commandments. To use language that we know that your son used in John 15, these things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. Father, may we go from this place today, Lord, rejoicing in the beauty of the gospel that we cleave to. May you find our gospel proclamations including language that you have shown us in the scriptures so that our proclamations might be aligned with how you would have us to communicate the beautiful truth of Jesus Christ crucified and the call to have the repentance displayed towards God and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ demonstrated. Oh, Father, may you keep calling uh, sinners from darkness into light. May you keep calling men, Lord, even as you called Lazarus from the tomb, even as your son did, Lord, Lord, May you privilege us with that great honor of seeing men and women, boys and girls, hearing the call of the gospel and saying, I've heard his voice. I've come out of the grave. I want to be baptized and I want to publicly display what happened in my heart. My sins were forgiven. I have been washed. I am the Lord Jesus Christ's Father, thank you, Lord. Now, even as we prepare to partake of the Lord's table, we pray that you would help our hearts to glory in our Savior who gave his life for us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.